Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello all theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion and is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our great white way, some making a giant splash and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplik, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a duo. You know them. I hope you love them because they're here. They host a podcast that could make you smile. And I don't think it had a rocky road to fruition. But then I'm not a total expert. I do know you listen to it and go, I love a Broadway musical. But I don't think I want to be one of the seven brides for one of those seven brothers. Please welcome the hosts of my favorite flop, Bobby Traversa and Christina Miller Weston. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi. Bobby, did I say your last name correctly? Yeah, I think so. Traversa. Is that, yeah, that's, that's what, what I did. said. Yeah. Great I realized I forgot to ask you before we recorded, and then I had Flop Sweat, which you guys both are familiar with. Hmm. The moment I saw it, I was like, oh, I didn't ask him. Let me just go with my instincts. It's, so glad my instincts were correct. It's okay. It's a super Americanized version of an Italian name that's probably pronounced very differently in the country. So, I mean, I found out my last name was given to my family uh, when we came to America in the late 1800s. Apparently, uh, I thought Coplic was not, you know, American uh, sounding. So I was surprised that it was given to us. There's a town in Albania called Coplic or Coplic ah. or whatever you call it. Yeah. So who knows how that's pronounced? That's exciting. Fun times. Isn't that fun times? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Flop. Hey, Flops. Hey, Flops. What? I like that title. Can we keep that title? Let's keep that title. Mr. and Mrs. Flop? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go for it. Those are your titles. Mr. and Mrs. Flop. Uh, what musical are we talking about today? We're talking about me and my girl. Me One my might girl. say this is uh, out of your comfort zone because this show is unequivocally not a flop. 
<laughs> not at all like this is what we're excited because we haven't officially talked about a popular musical yet christina together like uh -uh. on recordings in well, real life we have but. yeah what would not might be considered uh conventionally popular for sure in my eyes you guys covered smile and that's about as popular as you can get but i mean uh, yes absolutely yes, but Skyrim's. also a massive flop a smile yeah well, yes, when it was on Broadway, that script was kind of all over the place. Howard Ashman was able to pull it together, though. I won't let anyone speak ill of my Howie. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, we're not we're talking... huge Ashman fans of this group. Yes. Well, speaking of Ashman, Smile is represented in this season with uh, me and my girls. So let's let's transition right into him and her. Uh, Christina, Bobby, what is your history with me and my girl? Well, uh, as far as seeing the show, I saw the recent on-course production with mm -hmm. Christian Borrell and um, Laura Michelle Kelly, uh, which I enjoyed very, very much. Uh, and outside of that, uh, you know, the Lambeth Walk was such a very popular song that was assigned very frequently at AMDA when I was a staff member running the library there uh, for groups of students that weren't dancers and weren't necessarily conventionally attractive. So if there was a class of character actors who could move decently, they were doing the Lambeth Walk. So that's 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 my history with the show. Christina, what about you? Um, I, it was one of those shows that I've always been familiar with because um, my best friend in college, Holly, was obsessed with it. She had done it in high school. Um, and then recently, uh, a couple of years ago, when I did Matilda, I was directed by Jamie Torsellini. And Jamie actually uh, was uh, the original understudy for Bill on Broadway and then went on tour with it with Tim Curry. Um, and I believe has directed it at one of the regional, regional houses that was brave enough to do it. But he is he is like the go-to for me and my girl um, and listening to him talk about it even in rehearsal because it's farce for Matilda it was just fun. he just he has such a a love for the show and for that style so working with him was absolutely fantastic so yeah that's my that's my biggest connection to it it's an interesting show so I first became aware of it when I was 13 take a shot listeners because I'm going to mention it again I went to a camp called Stage Door Manor Performing Arts Center. Yes, and <laughs> my first summer there, I did me and my girl. Our lead was actually a young gentleman who's about to be on Broadway again uh, by the name of Etai Benson. Ooh. Back then he was Etai Ben Shloma, but you know, Broadway. So he's now Etai Benson. He was our bill. He was great. And it was such a weird show because like you have all these American teenagers who this was 2003. So Chicago was like really, you know, the movie had come out and everyone was so into that. And oh, everybody yeah. just wanted to do those kind of shows. And everyone was like me and my girl, what the fuck is this? And yeah. it wasn't until we did a run through of the first act for another company. Cause they were also doing Les Mis that summer. And we did a, like an act swap with Les Mis and we did the first act for them and they were just like dying laughing. And we were all kind of looked at each other. We went, wait, is this show good? No one told us that this is a good show. We just were sort of <laughs> rehearsing it. And then once we knew it was good, we just had like a total ball with it. And I, I sort of have always had my eye out for it and I would see other schools doing it. It gets done regionally pretty, uh, not to say super regularly, but like, you know, more than 
other shows, uh, especially right. other like British musical comedies of this ilk. And yeah, I, I don't know. I find it very delightful. I'm glad you guys uh, picked it. Uh, yeah. So how much do you both know about the history of me and Margot? Um, a little bit. I did some research before we got on today. So um, a little okay, bit. So I'm sure Bobby knows way more than I do. I was like, Christina did her job. Bobby, did you? I mean, I did my research as well, and I have some copious notes that I've taken, which is essentially basically every sentence from the Wikipedia article in bullet point form. Um, <laughs> same, 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 same. I there's did, a couple I, extra ones. Yeah, I, well. I was able to find some other pieces here and there other than just Wikipedia, because for this series, it's a little, I mean, it, this isn't like the Sondheim series where I could sort of dive into Look, I Made a Hat and Finishing right. the Hat and like the Hal Prince books. I had to kind of look through many other books to sort of find notes on it. And some things are easier, like Avida and Les Mis, of course, like the history of those shows are, you know, documented to the nth degree. Shows like Me and My Girl and even like Noises Off or, uh, I, uh, yeah, I guess Blood Brothers too. It's, you have to do a little bit more research on it. You have to kind of find other avenues. So that was, it, it was a very interesting thing, but also like, I don't know, the, the, legacy or the history of how the show came to be isn't that complicated it's it's not like they kind of had all these false starts what's more interesting is the original run of the show sort of what happened there that is kind of fascinating to me uh because when it comes to the version we now know which is technically speaking a revival uh you know what, we'll just get into it let's get into it shall we let's get into we it we shall yes all right putting on my rubber gloves and let's go elbow deep in me and my girl so uh, Me and My Girl is written by, technically speaking, uh, Noel Gay, who did the music. And then the lyrics in the book are by L. Arthur Rose and Douglas Ferber. The revised script has input by Stephen Fry and Mike Ockrent. We'll get to that in a second. The original production opened in London in 1937 at the Victoria Palace Theatre. That is where Hamilton on the West End is currently playing. It ran for over 1,600 performances. The musical was built as a star vehicle for the performer Lupino Lane. I always found it interesting that Lupino is actually his last name and that he changed it to his first name for the stage. Oh, really? there you go. Oh, oh I yeah. didn't get that fact. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. Well, and his cousin is Ida Lupino, who was sort of the first prominent uh, female director in Hollywood, was an oh. actress and then... Uh, I I don't want to make the claim she was the first female director. I don't know if that's true, but she was the right. first one to sort of work consistently and on very high profile movies. Right. So Ooh, that I, 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 I like that fact about him more than anything else about his career, but that's neither here nor there. Lupino Lane had created a character by the name of Bill Snipson in a musical comedy called 20 to 1 in 1935, which was also written by L. Arthur Rose. And the character was so popular that Rose and Ferber were like, okay, let's find another show to write for this character, which is a very interesting enterprise. I feel like that doesn't that doesn't happen usually. You could argue maybe Will Finn with falsettos, but I don't know if he always kind of planned for that to be a trilogy or if he just kind of liked writing about the characters. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because it's kind of a quasi sequel and musical sequels don't usually work. And yeah, so, yeah. I, is it is it a sequel or is it like I don't know because it's it, I feel like at this time 
when shows would kind of have quote unquote sequels, they weren't really, really necessarily thinking of it like we do now with, you know, the Marvel right. Cinematic Universe. They don't think about uh, continuity, character consistency. They're like, oh, no, in this in this version of his life, Bill Snipson inherits a, a title in hundreds of thousands yeah, of pounds. I- it doesn't feel that out of place to me just because of where this material comes from. I mean, throughout um, English comedy history, we can see how they'll create a character. I mean, it's it's similar to what happens in the U.S. with SNL, mm. but they'll create a character and that character becomes a thing. I mean, that's how we got all of the... Um, oh, what is it called? The comedies. They did a bunch of films in the 70s and 80s. Anyways, but yeah, those things like no towers. uh, What is it? Faulty towers, you know, Mm -hmm. all where like they've each created their characters and then the go on films. There we go. Monty Python. I mean, this is normal for them is to do this. I mean, even one of the shows that we talked about by Jeeves is based on a character that was created and then had 50 different iterations of it throughout different mediums, you know? And so, yeah, no, I don't, it doesn't feel offbeat to me for that to have been where it came from um, right. at all. For the, Just for because the, of how they work. Yeah, for English culture, it's not that rare. For American culture, it's yeah. quite rare. I think I think SNL is the best way to connect right. it of, you know, you find a character that people like, and then you just give them multiple scenarios to be in. And back in these days, that just meant writing another show. Because, or, you know, doing a radio program or or whatnot. Uh, Apparently in the original play in 20 to 1, Bill Snipson's character was a horse racing bookie who then joins an uh, anti-gambling organization, which gives me weirdly Flora the Red Menace vibes, which I know you guys have covered. Uh, Yeah, it's, I know, you know, it's Flora the Red Menace, except it's British and it's a man and it has nothing to do with communism. So, you know, essentially the same show. Same, same thing. Totally the same, same. Yeah, the parallels are just too, too, are too intense. Uh, the show was not the biggest success at first. And what happened was apparently, and I know Bobby knows this because he read the same Wikipedia page I did. There was a sporting event in England, most likely rugby. Let's be real. Probably. Maybe cricket, but it was supposed to be broadcast maybe on. Hmm? Maybe horses. I don't know. Maybe horses for sure. Or, you know, maybe it was just people walking jauntily down the street, seeing who could do it the fastest. Exactly. (laughs) Who could chug a cup of tea quicker, but without spilling a drop. You know, classic British sports. Classic British sports. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. The BBC radio was- I watched cricket this morning, just so you know. Cricket's fun. I like how flat that paddle is. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it makes my mind wander when I see it, but that's neither here nor there. The point is the BBC radio was going to broadcast said sporting event. And then there was a last minute cancellation and to take its place, they broadcast live from the Victoria Palace theater, the first act of a matinee of me and my girl. And that helped ticket sales sort of skyrocket. And they were able to sort of make that a pretty big hit from then on. Lambeth Walk became a big radio tune for the show. And then what happened was, and I wasn't quite sure exactly how this worked because I didn't know the origins of television, but the from every article that, that I've read, it's been consistent. In 1939, they broadcast the whole show on BBC, like on TV. Mm-hmm. And I did a double take because I was like, didn't TV not really like come into play until the late 40s? But no, maybe in I'm- the UK it did. The UK, it was yeah. a thing in the 30s. 
that is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. And you rented you like there would be one family in the neighborhood who had a rented TV set, mm. you know, that they paid a hundred dollars a month for or whatever. Um, and then they would all gather in the one house to watch specific programs. And it was like radio in the sense that everybody tuned in, mm-hmm. everybody like worked their schedules around <laughs> when these special programs would be happening. Yeah. Back in the day when there were, you know, four channels and there yep. would be times of the day where there was just nothing on. It would have that blank yep. screen in the middle of the night. It's when um, people talk about the Julie Andrews Cinderella and they're like, oh, my God, 120 million Americans watched it. I was like, yeah, there was nothing else to watch. That was like, the only thing on television. It, it was that or the news. They were going to watch Cinderella. Absolutely. Come on. But so, yes, in in England where they had TV, I guess they're not just, you know, five hours ahead of us. They're also 10 years ahead of us. Exactly. They (laughs) also had cell phones that texted long before we did. God bless. There's also (laughs) apparently there's a conspiracy that there's a shot in one of the Charlie Chaplin films. I think it's City Lights or maybe it's The Kid where it looks like a guy has a cell phone. And ever, and it's unclear what it actually is, but the way he's holding it up to his head, like it looks like a cell phone. And everyone's like, "How funny!" Everyone's like, "Was Charlie Chaplin a genius who could see the future? What's going on?" Yes, one hundred percent, absolutely. Uh, so the show broadcast its performance on BBC and continued to be a huge success. As I said, ran for over sixteen hundred performances, which for nineteen thirty nine and especially in England was like blockbuster you couldn't do any better the show was revived a couple of times in the 40s uh always on the west end always with lupino lane who also directed these productions it was very um you know kevin costner dances with wolves but oh god no but that's the only thing i could think of 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 a white dude who's like i'm just gonna keep doing these vehicles for myself and i'm it's all my creative vision i guess the other one you could say is george m cohan but cohan also like affleck um I mean, oh, there's yeah. so many. It's Both easier stage. for me to think of um, film versions because with George M. Cohen and his stuff, like at least George wrote the shit. Like Lupino did not write any of this, you know? So, and Ben did not write Argo. So I don't want to give him all the credit for that screenplay. Anywho, it kind of was, I don't want to say forgotten, but it was sort of thrown off to the side by the 50s and 60s as more American musicals musicals started coming over and London became more enamored with West Side Story and Company and the influx of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals became a little more cynical and the British musical was becoming darker and much more about elaborate sets and, and, and things like that and these grand epics. And so shows like Me and My Girl kind of got thrown away it also was never done in america i'm almost positive definitely not on broadway but i'm almost positive wasn't done in america yeah, i couldn't throughout find this record time. of that anywhere yeah the only yeah. thing that sort of came over to america was lambeth walk in the 40s was mm-hmm. that became a popular hit here as well and was covered by a lot of people and i think leaning on a lamppost got covered right. a couple of times but leaning on a lamppost was not added until the 80s yes but that is what we're getting to christina you're getting you are getting a couple of years ahead of me so in 1984, uh, I, I don't, Richard Armitage, 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 Armitage. I believe you. I think Armitage. it's both. Armitage. Richard <laughs> Armitage, who was the son of Noel Gay, which makes you go, wait a second. How does Noel Gay have a son named Richard Armitage? Well, Noel Gay is not Noel Gay's real name. Ah. 
Yes. Do we know this? Do we not know this? No. I didn't know that. Um, I don't remember his official uh, whole, the full name, but Armitage is his uh, actual last name. He chose the stage name Noel Gay for himself because he wanted to become like the Irving Berlin of England, which he did eventually become. But he chose Noel because of Noel Coward. And I don't re- I remember say. why he chose Gay. Uh, someone else with the last name Gay who was very famous. So he put the two together. He's like, stage name. Richard Armitage, his son, wanted to bring back his father's work because he he was, you know, very boomer kind of mentality. Like, ah, oh, these musicals, these Andrew... Oh, sorry, let me redo the, the accent here. Yeah. These musicals, these Androloid Webbers and the Avitas and the Kits. What happened to shows about a guy who loved a girl and that was the only issue? And it's like, it's like let's get back to some of those shows. So he reached out to Mike Ockrent and Stephen Fry to touch up me and my girl which they do and one of the they, first thing they do is they uh cut i think two or three songs from the original score and then add a few one of which is leaning on a lamppost older Noel gay songs they also add the song the sun has got his hat on and they change a the lyric because the original was quite racist oh my goodness oh yes um the the line he's been roasting peanuts out in timbuktu did not used to be the word peanuts it used to be oh. something else and they changed it. And it was it, even when it came out, like it was, I guess, in England, they thought it was OK. And then it came to America and everyone's like, um, no. And <laughs> uh, like America, we're very racist. So for Americans to be like, like in the 1940s, um, not this word that tells you something anyway. Uh, yes. <laughs> so they changed it to peanuts and they cut some fat. They added some more jokes. Stephen Fry is a you know phenomenal comedic writer. So he added a lot of jokes. And they did a short, what was supposed to be a limited engagement revival at the Leicester, 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 the Leicester Haymarket Theater, starring Robert Lindsay and a young unknown Emma Thompson. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, which I love. And apparently Robert Lindsay was sort of controversial casting for this. Because up until this show, he was only really known for a dramatic series he had done in the UK and Shakespeare stuff. It was similar to like when Michael Crawford, which we'll get to with Phantom, when he was cast as the Phantom, they're like, that guy who did Barnum and is like, you know, in Hello, Dolly, the comedy guys doing Phantom. So it was that reverse with Robert Lindsay. They were like the Shakespearean dude who doesn't know how to crack a smile is doing a musical hall comedy. But it uh, ended up working out for him. The show transferred immediately from there to the Adelphi Theater, which is um, where Patti Lapone had her, would we call it Triumph in Sunset Boulevard? Um, yes, Triumph. She won a, a swimming bowl from Angela Webber, right? She, Absolutely. Yeah, she won, the only people who didn't really triumph in that production of Sunset Boulevard were all the objects in her dressing room. Yes. Yes. Everything that she just destroyed and then the deuce that she left before she went on stage that day, or I guess when she left the theater that day. So it won the Olivier Award there for Best Musical as well as Best Actor, beating out Les Miserables for both of those things. Yeah. Uh, Keep that in mind, guys, when we get to the Tony Awards. And it ran for eight years there, uh, besting the original run of the show, but not becoming the longest running show in, in the West End, but was one of them for a long, 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 long time. The show then transferred pretty quickly because it opened in 1985 and about a little over a year later, it transferred to Broadway with Robert Lindsay in his role again. 
And I believe Emma Thompson didn't because she had a movie commitment already. She was going on to movies. She was like, listen, I'm not a musical theater woman. I did this to get a leg up. I'm going off to do movies. I'm off to go win a screenplay Oscar for Sense and Sensibility. So they cast uh, American, at that time, very unknown actress, Marianne Plunkett, and a whole bunch of other American actors in the show. And most notably, it was the first musical to open the Marquee Theater as part of the Marriott Hotel. Oh, there you go. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I believe, uh, God, why am I blanking on the name? I think it's Shirley Bassey. I think Shirley Bassey did Shirley a Bassey technically did a concert, yes. Yeah, she did a concert there. but she, So she christened the theater, but Me and My Girl was the first actual show to open there. Right. And uh, all of the stuff that happened after that we'll get to in just a minute. So... Bobby, Christina, who wants to go first? What is Me and My Girl about? Christina, Bobby, I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you. You're going to let me one. do this? Okay. Start, yeah. <laughs> um, so Me and My Girl is about Bill, who is a cockney, lower class man who finds out that he's actually next in line to be the Earl of some estate. And uh, Hereford. so. Hereford. Her- Hereford. Um, Hereford. Uh, Hereford. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the estate co- comes and finds him and is like, we need you. We need to make you into the heir because we have no other heirs. And so he goes, um, leaving Sally, who is his sweetheart, um, to go see if this is going to work and gets out there and he just can't let go of his lower class ways. He's just like, I am not this human. I'm not good at being well-spoken. I just don't. And you won't let my girlfriend be here. And this is upsetting all the while this other woman who I'm a little hazy on like, if he's related to her, it kind of feels like he's related to her. He's 100% related to her. Okay. Um, is like trying to get in its pants and he's like, get off me. I no, I know you're attractive, but like also we're related and also I have a girlfriend. Stop it. Um, and so they end with the Lambeth walk in act one, uh, which is really fun. And basically all of his Sally, along with all of his friends from the, East End of London show up and show them what it means to be an e- in East East End London person. Um, and they all join in and they win everybody over. It's a wonderful hurrah. And it kind of feels like Act 1 is the show by itself. But then we come back for Act 2 where they then try and make over not only Bill but also Sally. Um, they give them a speech therapist. They try and get them all dressed up and, you know, able to like show the lawyers that they're able to be upper class and take care of this estate. Ultimately, they just are going to fail at it because that's not who they are. But it all ends well in the end. And that's me and my girl. Pretty solid. Bobby, any plot or character details you want to add in there? I mean, she pretty much got it. I think the other relation to him is also gay, correct? Like heavily alluded. Maybe that was just at encores. The sir. Might I don't know confused. his full name. I could be confused, Matt. You look very confused right now. Yeah, I'm trying to think who's gay. There, maybe Parchester, but that's all I can think of. Yeah, it's the mechanics of why all this has to happen is kind of far-fetched and not that important because more it's more an excuse for 
antics and songs. But yeah, it's, you know, uh, they find out that Bill's sort of the hidden, I don't want to say love child, but one of the former earls of Hereford secretly married a lower class woman and had Bill. And then when he died, and so when the most recent earl died, which I think is this dude, uh, they were scrambling to find an heir because there were no other uh, first male borns in the uh, gene pool. And so they were, tr- they've been searching Parchester finds bill and it's part of the uh, will that the executors of the will, which right. leads to a fun joke on mispronunciation later on from bill, which I really like, uh, which is his half, his aunt uh, Mariah, the duchess and right. her I guess boyfriend, not boyfriend, friend slash almost lover, but she married someone else, Sir John. They're the executors of the will. And basically it's like, yeah, he had, Bill has to be up to snuff for the, and they have to follow and match their criteria of what it is to be an Earl and a Lord and whatnot. And if he does, then he gets all the money and the title. And if they, and if he doesn't, he has to go back to Lambeth. And on top of that, as Christina said, he's got the girlfriend, Sally and, he wants Sally to join him and like they add more complications where Sally's like, I don't want to be here. And she like tries to do sort of the like martyr thing of, you know, I'm going to leave you to this better life. I'm going to go, but he keeps on. It's the one thing about the show. I don't like only because not only is it a weird conflict, there's no conflict because Bill's like, no, I don't, if you're not here, I don't want it. Like I'm not, he's like, I'm not torn about this. I don't know why you keep telling me what's best for me when I keep telling you, I don't want it. If you're not here, it's, it's it's its own form of gaslighting in a way when you really really think about it yeah i mean also just to point out it's it's also a commentary piece because the class system in england in the uk is so distinct and important in their society even to today i mean the class system is very prevalent and oh yeah is very much a part of their society um but it's a commentary on how everybody who is from england can excuse me can basically follow their lineage back to royalty Mm. because that's how fertile and ridiculous they all were back in the day so um it's it's a commentary on how like we have all of these class systems in place but yet really we're all kind of from the same place so like let's all just take a beat you know and so but it is so important in their society which i think is kind of it's interesting that that's that's part that's like wrapped up in this theme of this very intense farce yeah it's they they have a lot of fun with sort of the ridiculousness of the upper class and Mm -hmm. all of their rituals and what's necessary i mean think about the sequence in princess diaries where uh, Anne Hathaway has to be trained by Julie Andrews. It's kind of like that for two and a half hours with a lot of fun songs. Yeah. <laughs> all, all, the, all the hijinks, like, all the falling over too. Yeah, like there's so much physical comedy that exists in this show. I, I'm sure we're going to get to it in a second, but I mean, it's the reason it works is because of Robert Lindsay. Yes, and the whoever you have playing Bill kind of has to have that same yeah. energy about him. It's well, and there were some other famous people who stepped in for Robert too. I mean, I can only imagine how wonderful Jim Dale was. Oh, mm-hmm. I know. Uh, like Tim I'm Curry. imagining in my head, and then Tim Curry, which talk about another Shakespearean actor. We think of him as Frankfurter, but like, dude was doing Hamlet before he was doing Rocky Horror. So. Yeah. No, all of these guys came out of the RSC. Let's not forget yeah. Robert Lindsay, um, uh, Tim Curry, and Jim Dale all came out of RSC. 
these these guys are not just like song and dance men no right. they they came from this kind of training so i it's it's just like when you look at to talk bring loop the mcu back in when they went to audition the first thor movie they specifically went looking for shakespearean trained actors mm. they didn't they didn't see anybody who hadn't had shakespeare training because it wasn't worth their time there's a reason that that training is so important and so important when you get to do shows like this yeah i mean don't forget guys judy dench was supposed to be our first Grizabella. Yes, and then she broke her flipping ankle. She, she was yeah. very excited about being Grizabella as well. Yeah, she was when you when she's asked about it, she's never like, "Oh, what a bullet that I dodged." She was like, "No, I was devastated." She's like, "I was so excited to do it." Um, yeah. Well, and fun fact: Robert Lindsay is actually married to one of the original cast members of Cats on the West End. Oh, who? What's I there? don't know. Oh. No, <laughs> I just know that that's that's a fun, fun fact. fact. Well, there we go. fuck my drag. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's an I'm interesting... not good with the names. Bobby knows this. <laughs> me and my girl is an interesting show for me because, yes, as, as you mentioned, Christina, like they play a lot with class. And because it's trying to be a lighthearted farce, you kind of just have to take it at face value. They never mm -hmm. really actually discuss any of the realistic uh, logistics of uh, different class systems of of people that Bill knows. They like hinted it a little bit, but it's more sort of in the same way uh the like an old school disney movie is like the what do you like there are people who are not doing great well let me do this one thing to change all that it's, right. it's very simplistic because it is a light musical comedy you're not supposed to think too much about it and all you're supposed to really know is like bill is a good person sally's a good person they're very much in love and like the only conflict is like the people who are now surrounding bill who are telling him that he can't be with Sally, but it's not even a conflict because there's never a moment in the show where Bill starts to think maybe I shouldn't be with Sally. She, right. He's like, no, I, it's like y'all are crazy. It's her. It's her. It's always her. Uh, so there's never any tension about the show. And you're also right, Christina, like the way that act one ends, you're kind of like, that's a that's a wonderful one act. And then act two is just sort of rinse and repeat. Granted, has a lot of wonderful rinsing, but oh, yeah, yeah. Like so like some of my favorite moments in the show are in act two. But like the whole song of Hereford and Bill having issues with the cape, just all just wonderful business. But yeah, there's no like it, act one does not end with a cliffhanger. You're like, what a wonderful act one finale and everyone's good to go and everyone enjoys it. And then act two begins and everyone's like, yeah, that never happened. The next morning we're like, yeah, Lambeth walk. That was a fun three minutes. But no, I'm back to thinking what I thought. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, I it's funny because when I was looking into the show and like really learning it, because I haven't had the pleasure of seeing it yet. I just know how beloved it is. I mean, my husband's an English musical theater actor, so like it is everything to him, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, it is the most important. Um, but um I I went into it and I was like, I am actually surprised because there are so many elements of the show, the way it's structured, things that are missing all of that that immediately lend itself to what we've discovered flops on broadway mm. right like through my favorite flop i've learned a lot about there's a lot of characteristics and there's kind of a checklist if you check the boxes on like three or four of these things you're probably going to end up with a flop and to a certain extent me and my girl has that but it is a massive hit and i think a big part of that is the funny you know like it's just funny lambeth walk that scene leading up to it is probably one of the weakest 
like book scenes in a musical I've ever seen. Um, but yep. it's so funny because Robert Lindsay can't help but just add in shit like he just like the picking of the grapes off that woman's hat mm. i was on the floor and you're like i don't even know what's being said is that a plot point because i don't know i don't care i'm watching this man just be the most ridiculous right and it it just works you just get so wrapped up in the charisma of someone which i also think is why it probably doesn't get done as much as it could um regionally for the sheer mm. fact that like it's unless you have Unless you have Bill like in your back pocket, there's no reason to do the show. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's very much a star vehicle, and I think one of the reasons that both of these '80s productions did so well is I think it was the right timing for this. You know, mm -hmm. coming off of years of the epic, you have the Sondheims and the Webers, these epic musicals that are either very cerebral or grandiose. You know what I mean? Um, we talked about this, Christina, when it was when he a decade before Weber was trying to make by Jeeves happen, which is essentially very similar to this, but um, in different ways, like the Brits were desperate to make the musical comedy their own because the Americans had such a corner on that market. And I think me and my girl was the first time that really was like, okay, we had to go back to the thirties to do it, but we fixed it. The Brits can do American musical comedy kind of sorta yeah Ish, right like because this is a really the first time you see this on broadway like as far as a british import like this right like i'm trying to think of another it's, example earlier than this so yeah it broadway is interesting when it comes to revivals because we are not yet in that stage in 1986 when the show opens in august where revive where like older musicals are treated with a little more, for lack of a better word, integrity. It's right. still a little bit of that schmigadoon of, you know, yeah, it's older and it's cute and it has its problems, but you know, nostalgia. So just do it kind of how they did it with an extra coat of paint and a little bit more cocaine up your nose, and we'll call it a day. You know, <laughs> like, no, no, Nanette. Like, yeah, no, no, Nanette. Uh, on your toes, you know, you either had revivals like the Oklahoma with Christine Andreas or the Sweet Charity with Debbie Allen, where it was like literally a recreation of what was right. done before, or you have an on your toes or an anything goes with Patty, or later on a Guys and Dolls with Faith Prince, where it is. It, it is a nostalgia trip. So it's not the same staging or design. It's it's a little more updated, but the attitude is still like this nostalgia trip. It's really, not to bring it back to my fave, but it really all starts with Carousel when we get to the revival where it's like, oh right. no, some of these shows hold up on a dramatic level. And if you treat it like a modern musical, it can be mm -hmm. just as effective today as it was right. then. And But yeah. then of course people take the wrong message away from that and they go, oh, so uh, we do it dark now. Yes, we do the dark version. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 we don't do a dark version of Guys and Dolls. Like if a musical has dark undertones, you bring that out. So like obviously with King and I, there is a lot of um, tension there with race conflict oh, yeah. and class conflict and, and all that. And and the uh, relationship between Lady Tiang and Anna of sort of, you know, you think this of us and you don't know what you don't know. And a good production will bring that out. But yeah, it's like funny you bring up King and I, because I remember as a kid thinking that was a dark musical. Like the because film, the film musical. I never I found the film that. that dark. I found the film okay. kind of, but maybe that's just how we both came to it. I remember, right. yeah, yeah, because I remember looking at photos of the '96 revival and going, "Oh, this looks far more interesting than the movie I watched," and right. I wanted to see that. 
but you you can't do sound of music like you do carousel like that's the two are not the same in the same way that you shouldn't do carousel the way you would do sound of music as we learned with the most recent revival but yeah. yet with me and my girl to bring it back to you bobby this was very much the trend with revivals but the first time with england that this happened right because I think they tried to do it with the boyfriend, but that didn't really go over so well. And especially because me and my girl had never been done in America. There was also a sense of newness about it. Some songs that people remembered, but no one had ever really seen the show before. So it wasn't, it was only a nostalgia factor in the sense of, oh, I love my man, Godfrey. Oh, I love the Philadelphia story. This kind of feels like that. Right. Um, Where it's very light, very carefree. And something that I realized with me and my girl, which I'm finding with a lot of these British musicals is you can pick it apart, but when it, when these shows work, there's something about sort of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts where you can't deny the impact. And well, and I've already recorded some of these episodes, but you'll hear it with Les Mis, you'll hear it with Mamma Mia, uh, but we've already sort of seen it with Oliver and Evita. You can pick apart Oliver and Evita, the stage shows till the cows come home. I don't necessarily think of it as a very good musical, but when you have really powerful singing actors in it and a director who can make it all make sense, it's like, well, I just pissed myself. And yeah. And and that's exactly what this show is. I mean, Robert Lindsay's, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the rehearsal videos have been coming out of the West End for anything goes, but Mm. he's playing, he's in it. He's playing Moonface, isn't he? Yeah. And he's, he, I mean, Moonface doesn't dance. He's not supposed to dance. Right. (laughs) But, he does um, now. He does. Yep. I, I mean, <laughs> he kind of does it, though. Like, they still haven't given him choreography. And you literally watch Robert Lindsay come on stage for, like, the big tap number where he comes out to meet um, Sutton, right? And they have mm-hmm. their little trio. And then he's supposed to go back up onto the set. And they finish the big dance number, right? And as he goes back, he's not supposed to dance because it looks like the other guy cannot dance. Um, and so Robert Lindsay just can't help himself. He just like, he does the same choreography <laughs> going back to the yep. staircase. And you're like, it's just in you. It's just who you are. You were a physical comedic actor. And that includes dance, right? Like he's not a technical dancer, but he embodies everything that goes with whatever the character is um and so i you have to have that i mean it's like trying to do one man two governors you have to have that guy yeah it's a great show but like you can't you can't do it without him yeah i mean i i think me and my girl is a better musical than the musical i'm about to reference but in regards to all the controversy with the funny girl casting that a lot of people have Mm. said i first of all i'm of the camp of you know wait till the show comes out before you're disappointed. Right. Like, you know, don't. I'm sorry. Don't... I don't actually know the controversy. What happened? Well, they just they announced they, they just announced that uh, Beanie Feldstein is playing Fanny yeah. Price. And a lot of people are just sort of, you know, can she sing it? She, we haven't seen anything regarding that she can sing it. And she's not right. a big enough name to make sense. Uh, most things where it's sort of, you know, I, I will not make a comment on her voice until I've seen her sing the score. And yes. I'm not going to say anything about her star quality because anyone who can quote unquote sing it is not a big enough star. But my the thing I say about Funny Girl is you don't announce you're going to do Funny Girl and then look for your fanny. You no. find a fanny all of a sudden and you're like, we have to do Funny Girl for you. Right. Same yes. with me and my girl. You have like you happen upon an actor where you're like, oh, my God, you make a great bill. And then you do me and my girl. Well, yeah, and, you and, put it in your season, you do it. Yeah. Well, and like you said, like me and my girl, I think is a better constructed musical than Funny Girl. Funny Girl's book is not great. Yeah, Funny Girl's and a bad musical. It's probably it, the it, worst, most beloved musical of all time. It is. And it's a, it was a star vehicle for Barbara that literally tailor-made 
like a glove for mm -hmm. her and every single one of her intricate talents. And it's like, unless you have, like you said, a fanny, you don't do funny girl because when you put someone who is not an absolute star and they, they don't need to be famous already, but someone who has that star quality, mm -hmm. the show, you see every flaw that, that, that is on that yeah. stage. Yeah. yeah. Well, cause it, it's to the detriment of funny girl that they tailored it so much to Barbara and they 100%. made, cause they were having so much trouble out of town. And basically Jerome Robbins's big note was just keep making it about Streisand, which made the show successful at the time, but it has right. made the show age horribly. Uh, me and my girl is not quite the same thing. It's, it's so interesting because we have things like me and my girl or gypsy, which were created as star vehicles, right. but the foundation is still weirdly strong enough in their own right that you can do it with a lot of other people and it still can work. Yeah, there's just so many other factors with me and my girl that works so much better, uh, which is strange, again, because I bring up, there is almost no conflict in this show. The conflict is, could be resolved over a cup of tea, that kind of conflict. Yes. Uh, you brought this up earlier, uh, Christina, but I want to get to her for a second because she's an interesting character in the sense that she is the closest thing the show has to a villain, which is Jacqueline the half first right. cousin of Bill, Jacqueline, Jackie. So the way that a lot of aristocracy works, and we see this a lot with, you know, the Royal family. And if you've ever watched Downton Abbey, you know, everyone in that show is pretty much married to a first or second cousin. The, it's this weird mentality of trying to keep the, it's very Harry Potter, keeping the blood pure. The bloodline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they're only so there's only so far away a cousin you can marry to keep that. If you're lucky, you can find someone who you're not related to, at least not that closely from another family who is equal standing as you. But usually they're like, oh, we want to keep it within. So it yeah. no one thinks anything of it. The Jacqueline is technically his half first cousin, but or no, I guess no first cousin because I was going to say he's only related to her through the Earl, but I'm like, that's how it works with all cousins. You're only yes. related through one parent. Yeah. Never yes. mind. I forgot how biology first works. cousins. They are right. First and this, if it wasn't 1930s, she would have been the heir. She would have been the one that took over. You Absolutely. Know? Like well, or actually her, mother, her mother would be the one to take over Mariah would, and then it would, would right. probably go to Jacqueline, but you know, the thirties and sexism, patriarchy, doesn't allow but Jacqueline is it for lack of a better term she is a gold digger which is interesting because she has money but she is more interested in having more money because Bill is set to inherit essentially millions and she's engaged to another first cousin who's a total um I don't want to say he's a fuckboy because he doesn't have the agency to be a fuckboy he's too <laughs> spineless but he, I think you know, that's the quote of the episode: "Agency <laughs> to be a fuckboy." Yeah, he's he's too spineless. It, what it's a very unique <laughs> character to literally be have all the qualities that would make a fuckboy, except for the agency. Like he just does not know how. He's well, too see, dorky. I think. Did you see the encore's production? Because I could have just been reading into all of the things, but I think they made a directorial choice to make him much more interested in all of the other men on stage than. That's a directorial choice for sure. Sure. Because when I when I did it and then any other production I saw and I sent you guys a video of um and which one was lovely to California. watch. Yeah, so really fun. really good production. It's not it's not that he's interested in other men. He's just a classic English aristocratic fop. Like he 
He may be a little effeminate, but it's not because he's interested in men. It's because, you know, he's never worked a day in his life. And there's a, I wrote, I wrote down some of my favorite uh, jokes in this show as I was watching it. And one of the earlier, earlier jokes that I really like is when Jacqueline and I already forgot his name. uh, Gerald, I think is his name are talking about who the new Earl's going to be. And she, you know, they're engaged and she basically is like, you know, you can sell my engagement ring because I'm done with you. And he's like, what am I going to do for money? She goes, well, you could get a job. And he goes, don't be disgusting. Get up before noon. And that's all you need to know about Gerald. Like he doesn't even say it where like he has any condescension to people who actually work, but he's just like, I could never, I would disgrace the family name. And he just has no... He has no abilities. He's got no real intelligence. He's just sort of is so sheltered. God, this is a terrible metaphor because I don't, I do not endorse veal, but he, but it's how farmers sort of create veal where they, yes, they won't let them stand. They won't let them do any hard labor. And so all their muscles are soft. Like that is Gerald. He has, he has no, he has nothing to stand up on because he's never had to, which makes him a fun comedic character, but like the least sexy, the least interesting, the least inspiring character in the show. Exactly. That's just my take. <laughs> but no, it does lead, I, yeah. But it does lead to a bop from Jacqueline for the beginning, which I really like, which is um, thinking no one of nothing, uh, thinking of nothing of or no one of but me. How does that, what's yes. the title? What's the actual title? Uh, I have Thinking it right here. Nothing of no one but me. But no one but not. What is <laughs> Thinking of no one but me. Thinking yes. of no one but me. That is the title. I really like it. I love John, uh, Jane Summerhays on the cast reporting. Jane Summerhays, she of The Wild Party. She of Sex in the City. I love yes. hearing her sing it. Uh, I just like, I also love, I mean, granted, it is a 1930s musical comedy. And so the more, obviously, like the more sexual characters who are somewhat antagonists have to kind of be a little two-dimensional in those in their eyes but i do love the i don't give a fuckery about the song that she has where she's like she's like yeah i'm gonna dump you and marry someone richer what of it And this goes back to what you were speaking about earlier, how it just is all out there on the page. There's no nuance. There's no like backstory. And no. did you get this? Subs- That's what makes it great because it is, they just said, this is my intention. And this is the intention of this character. And then they wrote it into the song and it's done in a clever way. And it's done with a great joke, mm-hmm. but that's what it is. And you know what? Sometimes you just want that. And if it's written well and you've got funny people doing it, cool. If it's well done, that's all. On, truly all I care is that it's well done. But also I think because I, because we live in an era these days, especially with social media, where mm. it is hard to come by transparency. Right. There's sure. something really admirable for me with Jacqueline, where she is just so transparent about like, yeah, yeah I'm leaving, I'm dumping your stupid butt for someone who I won't love, but is going to have a lot of money. And I just want nice things. Sorry about it. And she doesn't yeah. even say sorry about it. She was like, goodbye. She was yeah. like, it's, it's fascinating because when this was written, it was probably to make her come off 
uh, like a villainous bitch, you know what yeah. I mean? Like she, people would judge her for that, but it's interesting because I think in a 2021 lens, like we look at that and like, she's kind of badass. Like she knows what she wants and she's got no qualms about saying that that's what she's going to get. Like, yeah. okay. Yeah, the, the show definitely wants you to think less of her. And I mean, yes, she is not a deep person. And while the show doesn't have really anybody who's necessarily deep, we do have people who are capable of emotions. Jacqueline's meant to sort of be a little more of a sociopath. But I do, her whole uh, seduction scene with Bill, which you can watch on YouTube for the it's Kennedy so Center. Honors, it's great. First of all, Robert Lindsay is amazing he does great physical comedy it also has one, one of my favorite innuendo jokes where she's telling him you know basically saying like we're like we're meant to be together and she's t- like painting a picture of them honeymooning in italy she makes a joke about florence we'll go to Flo- uh you know florence and we'll make love and he goes you and florence but my favorite innuendo is she says you kiss me on the piazza and there's a beat and robert Lindsay goes okay so i missed yeah. <laughs> and i Love it. In the in the full-blown production I sent you guys, they make it a little more overt where she stands up when she says it, so her crotch is in his face. Yeah, You kiss me on that piazza. But to the show's credit, that California audience dies. Um, yeah. And I, but I, I, I have, sp- I have a lot of respect for characters that lead with their sexuality that are not apologetic about it. That are like, I'm very aware of what I look like. I, it's, I'm going to dress how I see myself uh, fitting and I know that it's going to turn you on and you know what not sorry about it right it's funny you bring up that I actually really fell in love with that character in that in that song for many of those reasons for some reason it actually makes her likable to a certain mm-hmm. extent um, even though like what she's doing is devious and not great um, but it, it brings I, I don't know there's something about it that just makes me as an audience member really fall in love with her and it also reminds me that since me and my girl there have been several um farce american farce musicals that have come out where they try and do a poor man's version of a lot of the scenes from me and my girl mm-hmm. you know like that entire sequence reminded me of nice work if you can get it you know like yeah, yeah like it's it's the same it's the same thing and so they're just borrowing stealing i don't know whatever adjective you want to use and taking from what really worked in me and my girl and are putting it in other american musical farces you know and i you know i i've worked with um some choreographers and directors who are like the brits never know how to make things funny and i'm like well you um stole a lot of things from them for this so maybe that's not the case <laughs> i'd argue i'd argue a lot of british theater is has a harder time with american musical comedy but that's because it's a very different kind of comedy from what they do for the same way like i don't know if i would trust an american director to do me and my girl like i don't know if they would do but as it good happens. a job as but sure it, it happens. happens bobby you were and gonna say something problem. No, I was going to say Gentleman's Guide is also a little paint by numbers. Like there mm-hmm. are full on sequences that are me on my girl. And I'm like, OK, yeah. there we go. Yeah. I mean, it and, and Gentleman's Guide for me is a show where there's so much about Gentleman's Guide that I like. But for me, it's more like it kind of has more hills and valleys. And I would argue that I think Gentleman's Guide may be a little more intelligently written. But right. me and my girl is overall more effective for me. Also, something that I realized with Jacqueline just now as we were talking I think this whole episode is just hashtag justice for Jacqueline, but she, a lesser show that really would try to 
throw her under the bus would make her manipulations go further than what she's doing. She would try to, you know, get into Sally's head. She would do a lot more vindictive things to really scheme her way in. All she really does to get her way is try to get Bill to fuck her and right. and say like, listen, yeah, you might like Sally, but like, come on, look at look at the material. Look at this. Look at this, honey. Um, and and like, and on top of that, like, the family will approve of you marrying me. So just like, come on. I'm sure that you can. I know you're a man, and you would if you could. But I shan't. When you're a bad boy, you go my way. But you're a good boy, and so you say. Regretfully, you would. It's all surface level. If you, I, either he wants to have sex with me more than he wants to marry you, or he doesn't, and like I will just sort of keep going down that road. I'm not. She like she never goes up to Sally like and goes, well, you know, Sally, the way that these things work out, like she doesn't do anything like that. And I, it's a weird thing to harp on, but I really do appreciate that that never happens. It's funny you bring that up because we talked about that with Anyone Can Whistle and how I really appreciated the two women being so starkly different, mm. and, but equally unequivocally, authentically themselves, right? Mm. Like they do not apologize for themselves. They do not. And I personally think that's kind of where that shows magic lies is between those two women. Mm. Um, but um, it, it is, it's fun to see someone just be, I am who I am, take it or leave it. And here we go. And it's great to see that in a comedy and it not, it, I don't get me wrong. I love things, you know, like La Caja Falls where it is, it's about empowering and whatever, but there is something empowering about watching Jacqueline um, in this show, you know? <laughs> So from here on out, everyone, we must refer to her only as Jacqueline, <laughs> just so everyone's aware. Yeah, no, but that's why Ursula is one of the most beloved villains of all time in the Disney canon, because yeah. she loves the the chaos that she in, that she creates. Mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't apologize for it, which is why I hate all the reboots where they're like, well, let's give them more conflict and, and inner turmoil. I'm like, no, they are so steadfast about their mission because first of all no one ever thinks of themselves as the villain uh something someone like ursula the chaos she creates is because she feels like she was wronged of her rightful stuff and so the only reason why she revels in it is she's like these assholes are gonna pay and that's awesome uh, well and i think that's how you bring humanity to a villain right is you show yeah. why they became who they are not give them like an inner conflict of oh is this the right thing to do no hmm. They're doing it for these reasons, right? Mm -hmm. You've watched the Golden Compass slash His Dark Materials show. That's exactly what the mother character is like. I freaking love that character because it is, I mean, it's fucked up, but like she is so like, this is who I am and this is why I am who I am and you are going to accept it or I'm going to murder you and get out of my way, yeah. right? Like, and that's great. It's so fun. To, and I, I don't know, maybe that's because as an actor, I'm like, yes, give me that character. I want to bite into that, right? Like maybe that because there's something wrong yeah. with me. But well, like, yeah. you also don't have to have the reason be something that everyone feels is justified. There just has to be a reason. Like you, exactly. read, any, you need, read any Neil Gaiman book. Yes. Most of the villains are uh, reasons for being villains. Like you read it, like I don't like that. You don't think to yourself, like, yeah, that seems reasonable. It all it has to be is like a reason. There has to be something that triggers them. Well, they didn't wake up one day and go. Time I end up siding with the villain at some point in a Neil Gaiman book. 
I can't tell you how many times that's happened. Anazi boys. Oh my gosh. I mean, come on. I could go on a deep sure, sure. with you about Neil Gaiman. We don't have to do no, that. No, we don't have but... to. But he always makes sure that there's a reason. Whether you agree with the reason or not is immaterial, yeah. though. He just, there because nobody wakes up one day and goes, I'm going to fuck over all these people because, you know, I'm bored today. There's right. usually a reason. Even Sarah Michelle Geller has a reason. Yeah, yeah she has a great reason. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Look. I really enjoy Jacqueline and I also really enjoy Sally. I appreciate that Sally is not a damsel in distress. I appreciate that Sally has a lot of her own agency. I mean, when she shows up for Lambeth Walk and is like, fuck y'all, look at my silver dress. I look awesome. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There is something so fun about her. I, I really, I really enjoyed um, her in this show and I, it, there's so much to play. I guess that's the thing, right? There's not an actual like ingenue in this show. And as a lady in musical theater, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Bobby? I mean, I don't love Sally. Like, I feel like Sally, really? you may have said it earlier, she adds unnecessary conflict, you know, like she, they decide, okay, we're going to train you. You're going to be whatever. They could walk away with all this money. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. All she has to do, like, she still gets to be with him. Once they have the money, they can kind of do whatever they want with the money. You know what I mean? Like, once they do their situation-ish, they yeah, have to play it's... by society's rules, I guess. But I hear you. I, I don't think it helps that the video I sent you, I'm that Sally's not very good. She's she not. sounds great, but her acting is not wonderful. And you can just tell that Marianne Plunkett, who is a phenomenal actress, probably gave it a lot of gravitas and same thing with emma thompson emma thompson right? that's what i was gonna oh, say. yeah because sally's not really sally has moments of humor for example when she and bill have the whole like miscommunication about history mm-hmm. where they each like they're each saying wrong things and correcting mm-hmm. the other that's really funny on both ends but sally doesn't make a ton of jokes she's much more the heart than bill is and in order for that to work you kind of have to a buy that she does love this man so much that she's willing very also in case anyone actually got upset i don't think anyone did but the gaslighting joke with sally was literally a joke she does not ever gaslight bill i just i like to make i like to say not always funny controversial things sometimes sally's not gaslighting bill it's more stella dallas where she's trying to let the man she loves have a better life and the miscommunication there which is truly the only real conflict of the show is between them where he's like no you don't get it I just want to be with you. And she's like, no, you don't get it. This is a way out. And they they keep kind of butting heads. And then the solution in the end is Sir John coming and being like, but wait a minute, Sally, what if we made you posh too? Then everything would be great. Uh, And that's- But I also like just- from a different perspective, I think that Sally's motivation is also about herself. Like she loves this man and obviously he wants to really try and make this thing work, but she's like, I don't want to. So like you do you, I'm going to go do me. And if you really love me, like we can go do this together, but I don't want to be a part of this world. Right. So like I, to me, that makes her a really interesting character because even she's, she's standing up for herself and what she wants. So, I, I don't know. I find that to not be martyrism. It's it's like, I love you enough to say that I also love myself. I, but maybe that's just 2020 vision looking at it. No, I, I, love, I love that vision. My issues, I don't necessarily know if that's completely supported by the text because... Sure. 
only and and this sort of where we get into that trickiness of the fact that this is a 1930s musical that like while in the 80s they definitely cleaned it up and made it much more um uh palatable it does still have some of that creakiness about especially the the gender dynamics uh sally to me and bobby please chime in with a disagreement on either end i feel like especially because when she enters like she is taken in by all of it as well as bill and it's sort of more sort of a self-defeatism of like oh i'll never belong here because i've already i've been told my entire life i never would why like you know i it reminds me of not to go back to an old episode but ava in evita with the upper class when she has that whole line where she goes she won't uh be part of your uh society of philanthropy even if you asked her to be as you should have asked her to be where it's like i fuck you guys i don't want to be part of your club anyway but you should have invited me and i think that self-defeatism is something that is very uh relatable for all of us where we sometimes will shut down the things before there's any chance of getting hurt to actually come back to my true recurring thing on this show. It's that moment in sex in the city, the beginning of season three, when Carrie has a hard time committing to John Slattery because she's just been hurt so bad by big. And she was like, why commit if I'm just going to get hurt? And then she has the same moment again at Atlantic city relatable. Um, But what Sally learns is like, no, you actually, like if you want it, you have the potential to, be a part of this world and we learn at the end that she does kind of want it because she does do it um and what and then then there are logistics after that that we of course like we it act two ends before anyone actually has the conversation of like well what happens now it's just like she's back she's posh he's got sally everything's great and we're like okay so the morning it's similar to like after act one of lambeth walk and the next day everyone's like this changes nothing i feel like if there was an act three it would be like mariah being like i don't know if this really changes anything but bobby 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 no i i agree i'm like when she comes in she wants she wants it like you said she's self-defeating she's i want to be in the club but they say i can't be in the club so I don't want to be in the club but they should still ask me to be in the club 100 and that's why i don't love her so much of as a character because she's presented and obviously at the end of the show she becomes posh so they do resolve that but it's like she when she comes in for lambeth she's very much like i don't get to be in this club so i'm almost going to ruin it for everybody you know what i mean by bringing all the cockneys in and you know, obviously everyone's like, oh, this is so fun. And we have this moment before everyone forgets it three hours later and act two. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I don't know. It's just, it, it's interesting because I saw Laura Michelle Kelly do it at mm-hmm. Encores, who is Mary Poppins. And I think act two towards the end of the show made much more sense for Laura Michelle's casting. I was very confused in the first act, especially in the Lambeth walk scene. Cause I was like, you're a little too posh to play this character. So yeah. maybe, maybe that colored some of my distaste for Sally a little bit. Cause I would have loved to see, you know, Marianne Plunkett do the entire show or Ellen Folly who replaced her, who mm-hmm. I wish there was video of that because that would have been so fascinating. I would have loved somebody who could really dig in to the Cockney aspect of it and then show us the other side of it in act two. Cause I I'm think I'm just going to throw this out there. I would love to see Laura Bonatti do this role. See, my issue with that is I have the same <laughs> feeling that Bobby had with Laura, Michelle Kelly and me, my girl, when I saw Laura in my fair lady and I saw Laura in my fair lady twice. 
Oh, where the did fir- you? Okay. Well, whereas like Lauren Ambrose, say what you will, like that whole first act, you weren't sure she was going to pull it all off because she was like just so guttural. And with like Laura Benanti came out on stage when I saw the show and I was like, oh, you're a duchess with a little bit of dirt on her cheek. Like, yes. you, like you are, yes. you are the Duchess Anastasia. Like you yes. are. So oh, she because just came she, out with her. like her actual physical. Just, yeah, she just prowess. came out so regal that I was like, oh, you're a, you're a princess in a bad dress. Uh, and it's just a matter of time before they give you a nice dress and you are just literally a princess. I, but I see what you mean. Cause Laura Benanti is a, she is a comedic genius and she would have yeah. found so much humor in that role. The From, only time vanilla ice cream has ever made any sense to me is when she does that song. That's Judy Kuhner Razor, And I don't appreciate that, but <laughs> fantastic. Wonderful. I'm glad for your journey. Um, <laughs> well, you, so you mentioned Lauren Ambrose. I would have loved to see her in this show because I feel like she would have been a lovely Sally. Like, Well, the, one of our big questions at the end regards casting. So okay, put no, a we'll, pin. We'll get to that. Sorry. Put a pin in it. Put a pin back in your Laura. You put a Great. pin in your Lauren and see if you can think of anyone else. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think with Sally, you do need to have someone who is really energetic, really lovable, and very much sticks out like a sore thumb among these other people. Uh, and it can't just be like her, 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 her posture and you know her Cockney accent. There's got to be something about her that's just sort of just so endearing. And mm-hmm. the the conundrum of Sally is she's sort of the the me and my girls version of the pixie dream girl without actually being manic or like she doesn't really have any life outside of the show or outside of bill she's there for him to be in love with her and her purpose as a mechanical part of the show is for the audience to understand why bill is in love with her and the only thing that they really give you is like she's just really lovely she's not like they don't have they don't have inside jokes necessarily they don't have a hot sex life uh She's just so charming that, like, the audience has to be like, aww. Once you lose your heart, once somebody takes it from the place it rested in before. Once you lose your heart, once somebody wakes it, then it isn't your heart anymore. You want someone who is so specific in their intention in every moment that you can't help but fall in love with them. Yeah. I was listening to your guys' episode on a Broadway musical in regards to sort of a lot of issues with Broadway that are <laughs> hard to sort of tackle because they've become so ingrained in the last First of all, some of it has been ingrained forever, but a lot, but yeah. some stuff has sort of been ingrained within the last 20 to 30 years, especially when it comes to um, directors and casting. Like for the, I would honestly say like since the late nineties, the attitude of what a Broadway performer needs, like what's required of them became mm-hmm. sort of established by a very select group of people, almost 100%. all white men, some straight, some gay. And Again, I talked about this, or rather I should say, uh, no, Jonathan and I both talked about this in the Avita episode. We've cre- we are creating a sort of army of eight shows a week performers, which in mm-hmm. some respect is great, you know, consistency and health and having the longevity of your career, but fewer personalities, fewer true like stars, um, and and unique people. And 
Broadway's not only uh, has a lot of uh, racism in it. It also has a lot of uh, sizeism and mm-hmm. ageism. And is there prettyism. a term? Prettyism. Is there a term for uh, vocal rangeism? Yeah. I feel- oh, why? Why are we having? Why men is every belt female high song- C's and yes. E flats like yeah. E flats for women? F's like yeah. it's ridiculous. Like we don't all need to hit those notes. When you look at the stars of yesteryear. Yes, they are technically talented in a list of ways, but you can't you can't just do a Liza Minnelli role without Liza. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Liza brings so much to the table on top of her dancing ability and her acting ability and her range. Like one of my favorite um, things ever in the entire world is the fact that Meryl Streep used to go sit in in second act, the act on Broadway with Liza Minnelli, just to watch her perform. Because Liza in that show did so much more than Meryl was ever taught at Yale when she was at Yale Drama School. Mm. Like they could not teach what Liza did. And she she talks about how she was an invested character in the show and she was interacting with real people on stage. But there was also this third element where Liza is not only an invested character in the action on stage. She's an invested character with the audience and she is performing to every single person in that theater. You can't teach that. That That's that, that personality. You're right. I mean, I love Sutton Foster and I do think she has somewhat of a personality, but she <laughs> is a very, she is that, she is a triple threat. She is the poster child for what I think, you know, we've been doing since the late nineties and turning out cookie cutter cookie cutter performers i will also say that eight shows a week was happening pre cookie cutter like let's not forget that they used to do eight shows a week without mics like it's about having doing the work technically on your voice to make sure that you're singing the way you should be singing and you should be able to use that same technique and have all of the personality. It's it's a glitch in the system, right? Like we have to remember that, yes, we're teaching the technique and then let's teach you how to utilize that technique when you need to be caught up as an actor, right? And yeah. how do you marry those two things? And that I think is actually, I mean, if we're gonna start at the root, I think that's really the big thing that's missing from our teaching system in college is that we're going to make you technical. We're going to make sure you can hit all those notes because that's what's expected of you. But we forget that it's musical theater. It's in the name, friends. You gotta act. Uh And I mean, you gotta know what that is. Take a year. Don't do musicals. Go do a um, Meisner class and just study acting and scene study. Just do scene work and see what happens. I could go on. No, 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 no. Also, one hundred, no, thousand percent agree with both of you guys. I think the two things that I don't want to forget, because I don't want to throw shade to a lot of schools and a lot of Broadway performers in this respect. I see what you mean in terms of Sutton. I do personally love her as well. I think that she's actually coming to her own as a dramatic actress. I thought Mm -hmm. she was stunning and violet. Uh, Oh my gosh! And I and I am not someone who uses those words flippantly. Like I. As you guys know, I am very reserved when I give very, very high praise. Point is, we can't forget, (laughs) as we were mentioning earlier, uh, the demands of performers has gotten more intense over the years. Like Merman has never sang as high as anyone sings today, never had to do splits and kicks. And then on top of that, 
we have the internet and we have fandom culture. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just a matter of like being in the show eight times a week. It's about being consistent. So like, yes, Merman never skipped, but like, we don't know how consistent Merman necessarily was. Uh, She could have had a night where she did like hit a bum note or where she, she was famous for eventually sort of walking through shows over time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Gwen Verdon, as we all know, like as time went on, her voice started to go with her and they would cut down numbers from Sweet Charity. And if that were to happen today, like like the internet, storm that would come around that so there's a lot of pressure on that respect with Broadway performers they're like it's not enough that I go on stage as often as possible and hit all these things that are demanded of me you know on any given night some fan of the show is out there filming so it's not just like oh I have Erica Henningsen and Mean Girls I have Erica Henningsen from the Wednesday matinee from the Thursday evening from her three months into the run the night where someone else went on for Regina that like all this stuff and it's like there are that shit all ends up on YouTube Yep, like, right. all on YouTube, Reddit, whatever. And so I, I understand where all that stuff is coming from. Uh, and which is why I say like, it's it's not like an easy switch to just be like, hire more people that are like this or that. It's It, all, no, it comes from it, everywhere. Sorry, I didn't mean to make it so generic, but I also- No, I know. As, as someone who I've spent a lot of time working on my vocal technique because I had a messed up voice. Mm-hmm. Um, too, and girl. so I, I have spent years- with this thing um but that being said the minute someone reminds me to start telling the story before i start thinking about my vocal technique and i start thinking about what am i saying to the other actor what am i saying to the audience what am i saying to that person in the front row or the person in the back row what am i saying and i go down the why rabbit hole and i start telling the story my voice just works because at the end of the day your voice just works right Mm -hmm. and it's all the other crap that gets in our way so at this is like oh this is christina getting on her soapbox as a teacher uh sorry (laughs) but like it is that sense of like if we can remind young broadway and this is young broadway actors my age you know remind them that at the end of the day it's about the story and we always come back to the story that we're telling then a lot of that stuff won't be an issue do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i think that we forget that because like you said the pressures of social media the pressures of fandom the pressures of all of these things and i get it i totally get it i mean yes but i think that coming back to what am i saying in this moment moment to moment to moment to moment and coming back to acting technique is actually what's going to help anyone any performer through that Part of the reason why we now have this British invasion in the 80s was Broadway was very hungry for shows that could make them feel and shows that could make them float on air. And Broadway American writers were not doing that nearly as much, especially in the wake of Sondheim uh, really kind of breaking the mold of what musicals can do, what subject matters you can cover, how you cover it. You know, we have something like Lacage, which comes in in 84, and that's a big hit, but that's coming after Evita and Cats, and people really want something like that. And me and my girl sort of uh, carries the torch from Lacage of like the next really good musical comedy with a big set and big 
uh, voices and a big orchestra that sort of takes you back to yesteryear. And it's why, you know, the Patti Lapone anything goes was so successful. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. People people crave that. They crave that kind of comfort food. And if it's done well, it's just as um, evocative as any, you know, quote unquote, serious work. You know, there's room for both, but they both can be just as equally effective. Like, I don't I don't like it when people say, oh, it's just trying to be fun. It's not trying to be groundbreaking because that's usually code for the thing I'm telling you is not well written. It's right. Yeah. But also everyone has to be on the same page. So that comes from the top. You have to make sure your director Mm -hmm. has a strong voice, a strong point of view and knows how to talk to actors. And the third one is the most important, right? Like so many directors have a strong point of view and know what they want to do, but talking to actors is not their strength. And yeah. getting actors to do what their vision is, is not their strength, right? Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard to find a great director that encompasses all that stuff when you're working with material like me and my girl, that the script is it's fluff. And that's great, you know? And so how do you, as a director, say, it's fluff, but guess what? We get to have some fun with it. And mm-hmm. this is how we're going to do it. And you excite everybody and you inspire everybody. That's important. And there has to be a lack of ego from everyone involved, kind of knowing that, like, it's I feel like on the first day of rehearsal for this show, the director needs to say, let's be very clear. So and so playing Bill is going to have the most fun of all of you on stage every right. night, no matter what, because he gets to have fun the entire time. Everyone in the show is going to have their moment, but we all kind of have to recognize like when the focus then goes to Bill because yeah. he's who we follow. He's who everyone is engaged with. So everyone gets their lines. And even someone like Mariah, the Duchess, who is for the most part, meant to be a killjoy she gets some first of all killer one-liners i love oh, it when absolutely. sir john says to her it crossed my mind and she goes not a long journey yeah i think that's that is straight out of golden girls that is something that dorothy would say to rose it's phenomenal um <laughs> it can all be brought back to golden girls always golden girls and sex in the city you can bring back all of musical theater to those two everything I, Listen, I, I say all the time, Samantha Jones is the prototype for what a musical theater character should be because there's so <laughs> much bubbling beneath the surface that she won't allow. And then every now and then you come at her with like a little pinprick and she just like crumbles. And yes. that's what every internal song should be for a character like that. Which is Absolutely. funny you bring that up. Did anyone else watch Snatch Game with? <laughs> oh, with Miss Pandora Box? Yes. Oh. Pandora. Honey, we sure did. Of course, by the time this episode comes out, Pandora Box's Snatch Game uh, won't be quite fresh in everyone's mind. But go back on YouTube and Just check it out, Just to remind guys. everybody. First of all, because it's uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, they can't actually do characters, characters, because trademark. So she can't be like, I'm doing Samantha Jones. She has to be like, I'm doing Kim Cattrall. Yes. Right. But so she just does Samantha Jones. <laughs> And calls it Kim Cattrall. I'm like, you. she didn't talk about any of the beef with Sarah Jessica Parker. No. She didn't make a mannequin joke. I'm like, for shame. For uh, shame. Girl should know better. She should know better. She's old enough to know better. Uh, what's Both of you guys, what's your favorite song in, in Me and My Gal? Well, so I'm not going to say The Lambeth Walk because that's like clearly the star, whatever, everyone yeah. loves it. Um, I really enjoy the sun has got its hat on. I don't know. It's a lot of fun. But again, fun. I am coloring it from the encores experience. And the I gay. thought that was a really, yeah, the gay. I thought it was really <laughs> um, staged well in that it was a lot of fun. This was a, it was a really elaborate encores production that this one did. Nobody had scripts in their hands. So 
Yeah, they've they've been doing that more and more lately. And you can tell which are the shows they're sort of like, we think this might be the one to go to Broadway, like Grand Hotel, Me and My Girl. They're like, Mm -hmm. we think these are the ones that could maybe go. And then they never do. But but it was Warren Carlisle's choreography. It was a lot of fun. And it's a catchy song. So I'll I'm going to say the sun has got a tad on. So that's that's wonderful. Christina. Um, I have a true special place in my heart for leaning on a lamppost. Mm. Um, I grew up listening to the Herman's Hermits version of that song. If you you haven't heard it, please go listen to it because it's pretty great. Um, and I just, I, there's something about that song that just brings me pure joy. But then watching the stuff you sent, I actually really fell in love with if, uh, if, if you could, the one that we talked about. You would if you could, yeah. You would if you could. That I was... I was like, I need to put this in my book. This is fun. Once again, hashtag justice for Jacqueline. Justice yeah. for Jacqueline. Jacqueline. We love a woman who fucks. <laughs> I, truth, there, I love most of the songs in the show. I think they're all sort of, they all slap in their own little cutesy way. It's sort of, <laughs> when I was looking at videos of the production, because, you know, there's the Tony performance where you can see right. and Aurora Spider-Woman has posted stuff like that. You would if you could. And then there's also a video that I think I sent you both of ha- Son has got his hat on from when it mm-hmm. was at the Adelphi. Mm-hmm. And they really leaned into sort of the old timiness of the show. The sets were a lot of painted flats. That was sort of part of the shtick of it. And when I was looking at it, <laughs> my immediate thought was, and I can't not think of it anymore. It's like, it's like an Agatha Christie novel if nobody died. Yes! Kind of, yes. Oh my goodness. That's exactly what it is. It's, is it um, weird that I had the same thought? Not at, I'm so glad I'm not alone. It's And then there were none except everybody lives and just has a really except nice weekend. No murder. Yes, That's absolutely. All it Agatha Christie is one of those people who just holds a special place in my heart. I was like 10 years old when I read all of her books. <laughs> well, so, and speaking of British culture, I, I love Agatha Christie. Obviously, you know, she has some books that are not as good as others but if you yes. read and and then there were none is truly like terrifying yes. as once yes. you hit that halfway mark like you can't put it down because it's so terrifying but murder on the orient express or yes. body in the library what i love is it's love this body british it's this british mentality of there's literally like there's been a murder like ma- madame there's a body in the library They're oh so no calm. that's inconvenient that's inconvenient like it's like yeah. the way they treat death in these books like there's been enough like someone made the choice to end another person's life in a brutal way like someone got stabbed someone got strangled someone got hit over the head someone got drowned and these people are always like tea anyone everything free and easy do as you don't well please why don't you make your way there go there stay there once you get down lambeth way every evening every day Find yourself doing the Lambeth Walk. When there are high stakes, they are treated with the lowest of urgency. And when there's no stakes, they're treated with the highest of urgencies. I love it very much. Me too. I I also really like the opening number. I think the opening number slaps Weekend at Hereford. It is a good one. Yes. Yeah, it's good. I also love, um, speaking of songs that do nothing, and the show is smart enough to acknowledge that this song does nothing, is uh, The Family Solicitor, which is truly just, we've got this char- character actor, he fucks, let him do this for four minutes. And then they bring it back constantly, like herpes. Yes. It just keeps popping back up. 
while we're on this i just really want to quick give a shout out to jillian gregory who is the choreographer of the revival that we now all know from Mm -hmm. 1985 and what i find fascinating about her i mean her choreography in this is stunning and Mm -hmm. fabulous and thank goodness it was a female like there was something really exciting about that for me i had no idea for some reason in my head prior to doing research for the show i had it in my head that gower champion did this show mm. completely wrong um oh he was long she, dead by now yeah i don't know why but i always thought i think it's because john angstrom loves this show so i just yes. like associate everything gower it, did it's also john angstrom. it's also it <laughs> but, is very championy like the show yeah, reeks of champion yeah so like for some reason that was always in my brain right and then um I read about this woman and there's very little about her online, but she did this show and it was her exact choreography was taken to Broadway. She won a Tony for it for best choreography. And she has, has yet to do another major production since she's, she's worked at um, a regional, one of the bigger regional houses um, and done like seasons there, you know, throughout the nineties and, and early two thousands. But that's really the last I could find of her it's it's because she got replaced with stroman gosh yeah it's my doctrine got stroman for crazy i'm about to say something that is completely saccharine i'm sure but like i'm mad about it like stro does great with some stuff but this woman's choreography was head and like head over anything stroman has done in my opinion i think she is fabulous and i am so sad that she has been lost to the history books that is your opinion. I agree with you. That yeah. The choreography is amazing. Uh, I think it's very bold that to say that it's head and shoulders above crazy for you. No, I, look, look, but, that, but no, but that's your opinion. It's what works for you. I love tap. I grew up on tap. Tap was my first love. And the tap choreography in this show, I was like, oh, this is not expected. They don't do things I'm expecting. And I love that. I love that that was that was the case. Yeah. Um, and she really utilized her actors who were great physical comedians like Robert Lindsay, you know, and really put that into it. And I love that, you know, and don't get me wrong. I love Susan Stroman. I love her choreography for certain things. Her anything goes choreography is absolutely beautiful and I love it. Are you but thinking like, of Kathleen Marshall? You're thinking Kathleen Marshall. Stroman's never done anything goes. I thought she's the one who did the revival. That's no, Kathleen Marshall. Kathleen Marshall. Kathleen Marshall. Okay, well then there it is. Sorry. <laughs> Stro- <laughs> but like No, but like just to go back to Stroman, yes. like I like what she does with a lot of things. I did not like what she did with Big Fish, but you know, I like totally what she's fair. done with other things. But she's a showgirl, you know, yeah. and this is very much like physical storytelling in this show. And I am in love with it. I, 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 I hear you. I think Strowman was the perfect choice for Crazy for You because of that showgirl mentality. And also yeah. for something like Crazy for You, they needed another American on that production. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I like about Stroh's choreography, which actually joins in with me and my girl, is it is character based in the sense of like she doesn't do like newsies choreo she doesn't do no. backflips she no. doesn't do like hit you over the head with you know ply you with after trick after trick. yeah there's yeah. usually like um like it, it there's a progression to it and uh you know her whole quote-unquote gimmick is props she does a lot of stuff with props right but she but the props are always unique to each character and i think that's sort of why mike ockrent went with her because of that sort of natural progression i think then the downside is he fell head over heels in love with stroman mm-hmm. and then he's like well now i'm just gonna work with you forever um, right. And not just as a 
collaborator. Like they got married, guys. Uh, <laughs> so there, there like, is I, that. But yeah. or it could be. It could also be that. Um, what's the name of the choreographer for me and my girl again? Jillian. Jillian Gregory. Jillian Gregory. It could be like maybe she didn't have the best experience working on the show despite well, the maybe. success of it. Maybe she I couldn't doesn't... find any information. There are people like it could be a Barbara Harris situation where she's like, I did this. It worked really well. I'm also now going to walk away and just sort of do things I like that I like to do and not worry right. about what's going to make money. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. It just as as a dancer, it made me sad that we now don't get to see the next thing she was going to do, because right. I really sure. I really do think that the choreography the show was spectacular and unique and fun but still stayed true to what the show was you know and it's when you can't see the work that's when it's great 100 percent was this show i say that all the time me and my meant for each other sent for each other and liking it so me and my it's no use pretending we knew the ending a long time ago. Some little church with a big steeple, just a few people that both of us know and will have love after, be happy ever after. I have two more things I want to say about this show, and then you guys can make your final statements before we go into the history, history, history. Uh, Bobby's got a heart out, everybody. So I am watching the clock, making sure that Bobby gets his say on everything. There is a Pygmalion joke in this show for anyone who's like, oh, this sounds like Pygmalion. Yes, the writers were aware as well because who it is, the name is not said outright, but it is implied that uh, Sir John is really good friends with Colonel Pickering. Yes. Because when he comes to Sally, he goes, I have an old war buddy who's currently staying at whatever street number, Wimpole Street, with a with a gentleman who does this for a living and he's done this before, you can go and he'll make you a lady. And everyone in the audience is like, ha, 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 Henry Higgins. And then when Sally does come out in her regalia, they say, I think she's got it. So everyone's yes. like, we get it. We get it. That was one of my favorite parts seeing the show live. There is one thing in this show that I don't like only because it's it's the one part of the show where I'm like, you could have done a better job leading up to this joke if it would meant so much to you to include it, which is how Jacqueline and is it, I keep saying, is his name Gerald? Is that his name? The, the wannabe fuck boy who can't do it? Gerald keeps trying to sort of chase Jacqueline throughout the show. And Jacqueline keeps being like, no, 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 I'm going with Bill. And then at the end of the show, Bill goes, I'm off to find Sally. And Jacqueline tries to, you know, diss him and he disses her right back. And she runs off stage and Gerald's like, oh, you really told her off. He goes, uh, she slapped you in the face. And you know, I think she could use a slap in the face too. And Bill goes, well, it's not her face that wants slapping and indicates like Jacqueline just really wants to get spanked on the butt. And Gerald gets the idea, runs off stage and then what I like about the joke in general is that they continue on with the scene and then every three lines you hear Jacqueline like get turned on by a spank and everyone just keeps on going with the scene because that's British culture. Absolutely. That part I like where like he and the, where he and Mariah the Duchess just have a conversation and then every three lines you hear like, oh, yes, Gerald. And everyone like takes a beat 
Anyway, that I like. What I don't like is the actual joke of the spanking only because there's nothing, it comes out of nowhere. So it just sort of feels like it just, it doesn't sit right with me. Mm. It didn't when I did the show, you know, 18 years ago, it still doesn't now. I think they think they can get away with it because Jacqueline is into it. And like, well, of course, Jacqueline's into it. Jacqueline's into everything because she doesn't sex shame. But that's a huge gamble that Gerald took. And I don't like that he just blindly took it. And I don't like the show doesn't justify it or lead up to it. It's like the one and it because it comes so late in the game. I'm like, oh, it just leaves like a tiny bit of a bad taste in my mouth as we come to the end of this show. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean... The fact that it's not consensual, like she's clearly enjoying it. And you're right, she doesn't sex shame. But because he, as the male, is taking the initiative to just do it is kind of gross. Yeah. And it's about the joke is how like Gerald finally is establishing his dominance and showing Jacqueline who's boss. And it's like, I I would prefer it if like they ended up together with him just blindly accepting that she's the top. Like, yes. Yeah, like, yeah, she's the top in the relationship. And that's fine. That works for us. But it's also the 1980s. And that's not how male writers thought. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. But Stephen Fry is just like such a cultured and very uh, aware writer that I was hoping 40 years ago. Also, like, really crass and can be really crass do you know I what think, I mean? yeah but so i th- as i said i think there's a world in which this joke could still have worked if there was sort of a build-up to it throughout the show of yeah. maybe discussion of like maybe jacqueline says to bill like tries to get into spanker at one point and he doesn't do it so like bill actually has reason to know that jacqueline would like that and that that's something that would really uh do it for her and maybe even like jacqueline says something to gerald at one point of like you're not like you if like I need someone who's gonna like be a man and can like give like give me the things that I need. And right. then when Gerald realizes what that thing finally is, goes and like, yes, it's still you know not the best, but it's not 100 percent the worst, you know? Right. Uh maybe maybe we go back into that script with the letter to Stephen Fry and we're like, Stephen, dear Stephen, maybe can we maybe if you if you're so intent on keeping this joke, if it means that much, can we maybe go in and just like make this he also may have been pressured into putting it in there by someone else on the creative team do you know what i'm saying yeah well okay so here's an interesting thing about the script as we close out i don't know if this was his joke or if this was a joke from the actual script because what happened was i don't know if you guys know this for the longest time in the london stage for like 200 years actually they had a huge censorship uh problem Mm -hmm. yeah uh every script that every any show that was going to be on the london stage had to have their script submitted to the government to be approved or not And me and my girl had to go through the same thing. And so they found the script, like the original script, like all these blue highlights on lines that had to get cut. And so they're like, oh, wow. So they're like, we inserted a lot of the jokes that were deemed too risque. Wow, there you go. Yeah. And so I wonder if that was in the script or if that's something they added. Part of me thinks it's something that they that they found. Um, I wonder if like by accident or some, I shouldn't say by accident. I wonder when they were playing with the physical comedy at some point in rehearsal, mm-hmm. maybe the actor did it and she reacted and it was a thing. And they were like, that's so great. We got to find a way to put it in. Well, and yeah. Let's you know? not forget that Mike Ockrent is also credited with script contributions. To also this. That. So like it could, like you said, could have been discovered in rehearsals. And 
I mean, this is very much, I know he didn't officially finish the producers, but it is very much in line with mm -hmm. that kind of humor yeah. that he started the process before he died of leukemia. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's so much about this show that on a political level, on a progressive level that I'm like, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I don't realize it until after the fact, but every time I watch the show, so mm -hmm. much of it works. Like I just, I bring this moment up because it's truly every time that I've come across it, it's, it's still doesn't do it for me. The only thing I like, again, is them continuing the scene while you're hearing Jacqueline, like yeah. have an orgasm off stage. And I do like that. They allow Jacqueline to have that comedic moment off stage. Like whatever actress playing Jacqueline, I'm sure the director's like, whatever you think works dear. Like, I'm not going to yeah. tell you, I'm not going to tell you how to come like whatever you, however you think Jacqueline, Find it, enjoy it. Yeah. However you think Jacqueline gets her zhuzh vocally do it. Um, so I do like that part of it, but yeah. And it's, yeah. And like every musical comedy of that era, like it all wraps up very quickly. Like they're like, yeah. Sally is still missing and we don't have any resolution. And then in the last 90 seconds, it all gets resolved. Yes. Uh, oh yeah. But, and then they all do Lambeth Walk. Again, it's not like Oliver where there are two dead bodies and Artful Dodger gets arrested and, and uh, Fagin kind of goes, well, I don't know. The world is crazy. Blackout. Consider yourself <laughs> at home. Like th this makes sense to have a Lambeth Walk curtain call. You know what I mean? Well, it's very much an episode of In the Life of Bill, you know, and as it being an episode, like, of course it wraps up because that's TV. You know, we have TV characters where everything gets wrapped up in a sitcom in the last 90 seconds of the episode, right? Yeah. Um, we don't know what happens next to these people. It's not really important. Are we interested? Maybe. But for the sake of this evening, we are seeing this two and a half hours of a day in the life of Bill. And, and today he's going to be an Earl. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's it, it works if you think of it like that, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I agree. That's a perfect way for us to transition to this. So the show opened on Broadway to really ecstatic reviews. It opened, uh, sorry, opened August 10th, 1986. And for like seven months was like the big hit in, in New York City because what opened in March of 1987, but a little ditty known as Les Miserables, yes. that show gets covered in our next episode. But me and my girl was able to still maintain a really healthy run. And in fact, it would have run longer. It ran for just over 1400 performances, which is still the longest run of a show at the Marquee Theater to this day. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. There you go. And is one of only like five or six shows that have uh, opened there that turned a profit. But they would have probably run for another year or two, but they got kicked out by the Nederlanders because they were making room for Annie too, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. I was about to bring oh, it up. Gosh. Oh my gosh. Yep. The they got kicked out. Up. Yes. The posters were up and everything because they were doing their out-of-town tryout. And it was obviously, as we, as you guys know from your pod, such a disaster that it didn't end up coming in. And me yeah. and my girl could have uh, had another year or two of its run. It was nominated for 13 Tony Awards, uh, more Tonys than Les Miserables. And basically between Les Mis and Me and My Girl, they took up most of the acting nominations mm -hmm. in musicals that season. And they won three. They won actor, actress, and choreography. People who don't know Me and My Girl and have no knowledge of Robert Lindsay's performance and the reviews that he got right. are still thrown when they find out that Colm Wilkinson lost yes. the Tony to him. And I'm like, I understand because Colm Wilkinson is iconic as Valjean and, it's his, and, it's, and Valjean itself is a really hard performance that he sort of put his stamp on. But you read the reviews Robert Lindsay got and you watch videos of him in it and you're like, oh, I get it. 
I absolutely get it. Look, what Robert Lindsay does in this is so unique and specific to him that I don't know anyone with any performance who are who's going to win to that. Like, you just have to give it to him. I mean, all you have to do is so as uh, as I'll say now, uh, the show. Oh, first of all, do you guys know the other musicals that it was up against for best musical that year? Obviously, one was Les Mis. 87. 87 Tony Awards. Yes. Oh, I don't remember. Into the woods. I should have looked it up. That's the next year. We do. Ah. So we have Les Mis. We have another Andrew Lloyd Webber. Phantom. Cats. No. Those Starlight shows Express. one best musical. Yep. Starlight Express. Okay. And then no. the fourth is a. Uh, speaking of Miss Judy Kuhn, who Christina famously hates and thinks is terrible, doing that vanilla is ice incorrect. Cream. I really rags. like Judy Kuhn. It was rags. It was rags. Right. It was rags. rags. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, should have been Smile, but what? Who, uh, who? Who's to say? Smile did get a nomination for best book, though, which is hysterical to me because because that was, book is not Howard's not best material on that show. No, the his, the script that is licensed for Smile is a million times better than what was on Broadway. I do think he got the nomination solely for the line. There have been two Black Miss Americas if you count Vanessa. And I just think he won- I think he got nominated so for that. Good. That's it's so, so good. good. He, uh, it's And if you listen to the audio of the final preview where the audience is filled with gay men who love Little Shop of Horrors oh and are like gosh. so excited for his Broadway debut, they howl at that line because oh, they're all so on top good. of it. Anywho, that's what it was up against. <laughs> Did lose Best Musical to Lemez, Les Them Gay. Uh, Jim Dale, as we mentioned, replaced on Broadway, and uh, Tim Curry did the show on the road. Has not been done on Broadway since. I don't think it's even been done on the West End since. And when it was done at City Center, which Bobby saw with Christian Borle and Laura Michelle Kelly, the New York Times like wasn't super into it. Yeah, and he didn't like it at all. Yeah, he first he like doesn't like the show very much, and he kind of gave a sort of half positive half mixed review on Borel and I did not see the show with Christian Borel but from the videos I've seen he seems good but there's something about it's like a little he's trying too hard trying too hard a little cheeky he's commenting on it you know Mm. yeah um I talked about this with the noises off episode but like the what makes comedies work is the character does not think what's happening to them is funny yes and you have to be a smart enough actor to recognize the humor of the situation while also not going to the audience being like, I see the humor. And in the one clip I saw, he made an Oliver joke. And part of me wanted to be like, Oliver didn't open in the West End for another 30 years. Ah. So don't make that joke, asshole. Uh, he was going, ripe, strawberries, ripe. I'm like, nope. 25 years later, that show comes out. But yeah, that's, part of, I... that's part of Christian's charm, though, yeah. is he always has this kind of winky, like, commenting because I even think of all the way back to Legally Blonde and he has that a little yeah. bit of Zemet as well. So, yeah. And yeah. like, that's why he gets hired for the things he gets hired. But I don't, I agree with Matt. I don't think it makes it, I don't think he's right for this role. No. I think I, there are plenty of other physical comedians that exist. Like the guy from Waitress. Well, okay, so here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Final, final questions. Here we go. Because we're wrapping up because we're, we're coming to Bobby's heart out. Yes. First question. Far too many notes for my taste. If you had to cut one song of the show, what would it be? Christina, you first. I don't know that I have an opinion on this. Ooh. I actually don't. I I think that it all makes sense. So I, I don't think I have one that you should cut. Maybe one of Sally's ballads. Maybe we can get rid of one of those. Once Although, you lose your heart. Yeah, we can get rid of that one. Yeah. I think keep it on the chin. We've got to keep. We've got to keep, yeah. keep it on the chin. I love that song. Bobby? I, 
I was going to say once you lose your heart, but because Christina already said it, I'm going to be very controversial and say, I don't need, think the show actually needs leaning on a lamppost. I think <gasps> they put it in there because it was popular song and they're like, we're reviving it. We need to put another one of his really popular songs in it. I think you could do without leaning on a lamppost. Bobby. Well, okay. Here's the tea. I actually agree with Bobby and this, Christina. We're in Ugh. a sense, well, in a sense that sometimes one of the most enjoyable things uh in a show can actually be something that kind of weirdly poisons it at the same time because yeah. act two of me and my girl is long and you kind of want to get to that ending and also i think they wanted to make use of this set they're like we have this whole set for this one yes. scene what we need to have a musical number here we can't just have it be sir john telling sally where she's going to go to get her voice lessons right. um but yeah it's it's such a delightful song and if you have a good bill, it can be really enjoyable, but it also like poisons act two where it's like, we need to get to the end. So I see both of your points. I'm going to go a little further towards leaning on a lamppost only because I don't want to cut any of Sally's time. She may not have that much depth and, and uh, personality outside of loving Bill, but damn it if I don't want her to sing more to me, especially Marianne Plunkett. That's fair. Yeah, but you're you're both right and you're both wrong. Next one. <laughs> okay. Next one. I dreamed a dream cast. Who would you like to see in this show? Oh my goodness. Okay, I would love to see, on the female front, I would love to see someone like Annalie Ashford. Mm. Um, I would love to see someone like, oh my goodness, personality, personality. Um, as a Sally, but I worry with someone like Annalie, is she too big? You know what I mean? Is she gonna yeah. pull too much focus? Uh, oh gosh, who did I say earlier? Because that's my- You said Lauren Ambrose, which I think is a really interesting choice. I think Lauren um, Ambrose would be a lot of fun. A I lot think so. of fun. She'd be very endearing for sure. And she has that like heart-shaped face situation that mm -hmm. like just, it's sweet. yeah, very sweet and very 1930s. Uh, I, I don't have a Sally, but I was thinking earlier, I would like to see Nancy Opal as the Duchess Mariah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think she would slay. Uh, or like Anne Harada. So, like I wanted. Oh, I was oh my so gosh, here absolutely. For that. Yeah, I, because while I love Jane Connell, I I was spoiled because when we did it, we had a really phenomenal girl do the Duchess, and, and she her and her voice was so insane. So like Song of Hereford was a showstopper because she like she had it was like like a classical voice, but it was that classical mixed pinginess where like yes, it was a soprano, but it had a lot of heft to it. Right. And Jane Connell, God love her, at that point of her life, it was very the men of Hereford. Anyway, Christina. <laughs> um, I think Chris Fitzgerald would make an incredible bill. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. would love to see that happen. Um, I love his physical storytelling. You know, he's another one of those that focuses on I am an actor. And yeah, I can sing, but I am an actor first. Um, and then I actually am gonna throw out that I would love to see them go and find a Sally that is East End Black London. I totally. think that would be really fun and interesting. I mean, who we know would be someone like Cynthia Erivo because she's black and British, but she would not be right for that role. Yeah, um, no, no, but, no, go find her. She's out there. No, she's out there. They exist, and the problem is, is that like the opportunity hasn't been there, so we haven't met them yet. Exactly. Um, so I would actually really love to see that. I think that would be really interesting and fun, and also would just like add another layer to the class system situation, you know, which 100%. could be really interesting and, and fun. Two last questions. Uh, yes or no? Rainbow High Spectacle. Do you guys think the show needs production value to work? No. No. Okay, there we go. That's it. Um, I, ah. I agree. I don't think you can you necessarily do it. You need a couch and maybe 
like a a stair step. I don't think you, I don't think a black box is the best for it. I do think you, I think if you need spectacle costumes, I say, put your money in the costumes. That's where it's at. And lights, lights help so much. So much. Uh, Final question, personal rating on a scale of one to 10, one being no, 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 no way. And 10 being (laughs) now and forever. Where do you rate this show? Bobby. I would give it a solid eight. Christina. Now and forever for me. Oh, it's solid 10. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, I'm going to give it a nine. I'm going to go okay. right in between you you two because I think that even with a lackluster cast, there's a lot of fun to be had. But when everyone's on the same page, oh yeah, this show fires on all cylinders 100%. in a way that like I can't actually analyze for you. It's not science. It's just chemical. No. And I think that's where my 10 out of 10 comes from is I'm assuming that we've got we've got lightning in a bottle and we're doing the thing. Phenomenal. Uh, where can people find you? First of all, thank you so much for both of you for joining me today. Thank you I'm, for having us. I am, I'm wrapping us all up today. This has been great. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? Well, we're on all major podcast form uh, platforms. Oh my gosh. Uh, my favorite flop, but we love if you listen on Apple Podcasts because if mm-hmm. you click that little subscribe button, puts us up in the ratings so other people can find us. Uh, and Christina, where are we on the web? We are everywhere at my favorite flop. Um, we're on TikTok. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Most of those, you can find some really fun, silly videos, um, either from the shows that we've talked about or Christina and Bobby doing story time. Um, and then we also have a website, myfavoriteflop.com, where Bobby has a really interesting blog um which kind of goes deeper into some theater lore and that's a lot of fun it's also where you can find our merch Woo! we love that merch christina's wearing it right now uh you can find me on instagram at matt coplick usual spelling if you like the podcast rate review subscribe tell your friends about it if you don't like any of my opinions you can write so in a review tell off on how much you hate my voice my opinions just make sure that it's five stars because algorithm she real uh you can't find me on my favorite flop because these two assholes famously haven't brought me on they didn't reach out to me for a smile and i find that homophobic but homophobic because we, we don't have real guests on our show we're trying we to figure that out we have what do you like mean you don't have what do you mean you're trying to figure that out that's not english well we have a really wonderful side show called uh <laughs> after the bows um side which show. you can find yes did you see how that, that? and that's what mark um, Timonelli was on he wasn't yeah, on the mark, actual podcast. mark was on after the bows and we do that on youtube um we're reworking that for this uh act two situation mm-hmm. um but if you want to listen to some fascinating stories with some really amazing people, including Julia Murney, um, you can head to our YouTube and uh, watch some of that, which is where you will see Matt at some point. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, listeners, please f- follow these two on Instagram, on TikTok, and then troll them, please, <laughs> intensely to get me on either After the Bows or My Favorite Flop, only because it needs to happen. And I'm going to shame them when I go on about not including me for a smile. Absolutely. Not even as like, as a- We've as gotten a, that from a few people actually. Yeah. Why didn't you call me for a smile? Choices were made. Ah. Uh, to make you feel better, your name has come up in conversation like 10 times. So. 10 times. That makes, that makes me feel wonderful. I don't get a lot of compliments, so I'll take them wherever I can find them. Oh, well, so, we think you're amazing, so there. You're both amazing. This has been so great. Here's the tea. We close out every episode with a Broadway diva. 
I would love so much to close out with Marianne Plunkett. And I thought about this and I said, okay, she did, never did another musical where she's on a cast recording. So I have to be very strategic about the editing of this episode when I include music throughout to not include Take It on the Chin so we can close out with Marianne Plunkett belting her heart out to Take It on the Chin. Yes. Oh, it's so good. Sound like a plan, everybody? Yes. yes. That's a great uh, plan. Catch us next week as we do the little black box ditty underdog cult classic Les Miserables. Uh, for anyone who's that never heard show. of it, you'll learn all about it, all the opinions, all the treats. And until then, thank you so much for listening. Here's Marianne. Take us away, girl. Bye. What's the use of worrying about a single blessed thing? After all is done and said, pretty soon we'll all be dead. So is there a lie? If there's a bother you want to survive, just you take on the chin, cultivate a little grin and Whenever things get a little bit thick, just you take on a chin. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.